New Year, same challenges. Dash aren't defeated yet and they still present a threat to the UK, so operations are continuing. And a bleak forecast from a top defence analyst. We've reached a point when trying to maintain full capability forces, full combat spectrum forces at very low numbers is no longer sustainable. So this week we're all about forecasts. What will 2018 have in store for the British forces? Let's start with the UK's air campaign against Islamic State, Op Shader. Last year saw IS defeated in Iraq and ousted from their headquarters in Syria. The UK played a key part in those gains, launching airstrikes and training Iraqi forces. In an exclusive interview, Simon Newton spoke to the RAF officer in charge of the UK's air campaign about the past year of Op Shader and what 2018 might hold. I think what we've done is we've defeated their caliphate. This is this notional territory that they controlled across Iraq and Syria, uh, and we've made it extremely difficult for them to operate. Based in Qatar, Air Commodore Roddy Dennis is the man in charge of the UK's air campaign against Islamic State. He told me 2017 had been a successful year, Iraq's Prime Minister declaring victory over IS, but he also urged caution. So where we are now is we're essentially hunting them across the open deserts and in some areas in the Euphrates uh, and denying them the ability to operate freely. But Daesh aren't defeated yet and they still present a threat to the UK, so operations are continuing. Last summer marked a turning point in the war on IS after months of bitter fight. Iraqi forces retook the country's second city, Mosul. Soon after, other key towns fell, Hawija, Qaim, and the Syrian cities of Deir el-Zur and Raqqa, once the capital of IS's self-declared caliphate. It's from here that you have conducted more than 1,600 airstrikes. In December, the Prime Minister visited Cyprus, praising all those involved in Op Shader. While the ground war has slowed in intensity, the air campaign continues apace. The RF is still flying daily missions hitting terrorist bomb factories, tunnel networks and vehicles as the coalition goes after those IS fighters still at large, including its leader, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. There's a $25 million bounty on his head. Are the RAF involved in the hunt for him? I mean, it would be wrong of me to talk about operational issues, but, you know, he as an individual is just but one element of, um, of Daesh. And, you know, we're not looking out for one individual. We're looking for Daesh as an organisation. We're absolutely focused, as, as this awful terrorist organisation that they are, um, to do whatever we can as part of a whole government effort uh, to defeat Daesh and, and really remove that threat. From the UK. Interpol has a database listing the names of 43,000 foreign fighters from 60 countries believed to have joined Islamic State. Air Commodore Dennis again. And now we're at that point of where they're in the population. Uh, and actually that's a skill that we've retained from our time in Afghanistan, is that we are experts at going out, wide area surveillance, so that's looking amongst the general public. Uh, and through our knowledge and expertise and the brilliance of our people, we're able to single them out. As Op Shader marks the end of another year, IS remains a threat worldwide, and the UK is likely to be involved in fighting for some time. Simon Newton, Forces News, Qatar. Well, let's talk to Professor of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford, Paul Rogers, and BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee, who are joining me for the programme today. Um, Professor Rogers, the caliphate has been defeated, but it isn't the end of it, is it? Not by a long shot, in fact. I think they've given up the idea of progressing from a geographical area, the caliphate. They're now presenting it, really as an example, a symbol of what it was possible to do 
before they faced up to you know, the most powerful military forces on Earth. So they're sort of turning to their advantage. The one thing that really surprised me about the report we just heard was this, um, I think it was Interpol or Europol uh, estimate of 43,000 foreign fighters having joined ISIS-Daesh outside of Syria and Iraq. That's a much higher figure than we've had before, and it indicates the extent of what went on. Mm. I think the, the, the Americans now reckon they've killed 60,000-plus of ISIS people overall. That's a heck of a lot of families and friends who have lost people who will be angry and resentful. And from their perspective, these are basically the foreigners killing them again. That is one of the motivations which I think is going to cause us problems in the future. The caliphate is gone. The other, incidentally, is the massive damage that has been done. The reports now coming out of western Mosul uh, indicate you know, a, a degree of damage from the airstrikes and artillery and what Daesh did itself is quite appalling. And unless you get reconstruction of that, again, you're going to get a lot of anger and bitterness. Uh, so I'm not sanguine, I'm afraid, about the future. I think really this is one step in a very long war and we're now into the 17th year of this war. We still don't seem to have a handle as, as to how to best to handle it. Christopher Lee, when you hear uh, during that interview that the words that Daesh is not defeated yet but still a threat to the UK, what do you think that means in terms of the policy of airstrikes on IS? Um, the policy of airstrikes on IS, and that's a, a coalition policy, um, it, it, it commits you to one aspect, and that is, if you like, driving IS out of the area. There is a certain uh, certain sort of school of thought says you're actually better keeping them in there. In other words, they won't then spread out. They won't return home, etc. Et but uh, you know that's. But will the tempo of bombing continue? The tempo of bombing will continue. Uh, it will not only continue; it will continue over broader scales. Because I think that we're actually moving towards a point where there may be other tar target areas selected. There may be other types of targeting that's going on using different weapons. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Just as it's, it's an aside from this, um, sixteen hundred uh, sorties last year. Yeah, sixteen hundred. Each sortie costs about, let us say, about £90,000. When you get to discuss things like the, the defence budget, don't forget 1,600 multiplied by 90,000. One weapon costs 30,000. It shows it in a far more complex mm. light than we see it now. Meanwhile, Paul Rogers, IS is gaining ground in Afghanistan. How has that been able to happen? I think, uh, obviously, you've had the withdrawal of the great majority of Western troops. It's down from a peak of 140,000 about five or six years ago through to about 13,500, 14,000. It's going up again now. But the reality is that the Afghan government isn't able to cope. Um, the Taliban, as well as ISIS, but principally the Tal Taliban, are reaping huge re rewards from open production, which really went through the roof in the last planting season. So overall, I think the, the country is sufficiently ungoverned in sufficient numbers of places for ISIS to get a hold. But don't forget, you have much more activity and far more American airstrikes in Yemen, in Somalia, in the Sahel, and we had that extraordinary incident earlier in the summer where an ISIS offshoot took control of the southern Philippine city of Marawi for the best part of six months. So in other words, it's branching out elsewhere, even though absolutely... So you think the threat from Afghanistan is not considerable? Oh, I, it's, in terms of the threat to countries like Britain, probably not. But in terms of the stability of the country, we have a very long way to go, I'm mm. afraid. Christopher, in terms of Britain, um, there are reports the British embassy in Kabul is being shifted. What's going on there? Can you tell us? Um, Kabul, as a, uh, as a city, is insecure. And that the British are making 
at the least, very least, plans to move closer in to the more security, secure area, which gives some indication that when you look at ISIS, but when you also look at Taliban, uh, that the battle there is not one of simply containment, because the intelligence gathering on the on the attacks that do take place, and they are successful as far as the terrorists are concerned, the intelligence on it is not as good as one imagines it. And also, there's another aspect of this, that we have, in, for the moment in Pakistan, we've had it for some time now, the fact that in the intelligence services in Pakistan, they've got actually control and also support some of the Taliban, and including the families, the, ta- the Taliban operations. And this is something which... The U.S. The, president has uh, been He has said, we recently. are going to take all the, uh, he said, the 33 or whatever it is, billion pounds worth of aid. We're going to stop that. The point being is that the uh, Pakistanis suddenly believe that. Therefore, is the words now that they may move towards the control, or not control, but the support of the Chinese. And therefore, you change the dynamic, or you potentially change the whole dynamic of, of, of what's going on in just one region uh, of, of, of the fight against ISIS and also uh, Taliban. Gentlemen, stay with us. Sit right with Kate Still to come, the future of UK defence. Are there too many generals in the British Army? And who will be the new chief of the defence staff? There was plenty of talk last year about future cuts to Britain's armed forces. 2018 will see a capability review at the MOD, but that will lead to cuts in the same year, will it? Here's the former Director General of the Royal United Services Institute, Professor Michael Clarke. I think for the next year, the immediate challenges for Britain are, first of all, to get through the National Capability Review, uh, which was meant to be cost-neutral, but the trade-offs are so severe that that review looks as if it might be quite a big review in terms of what it's going to mean for the MOD. And then the other domestic thing for Britain is um, dealing with prevent the whole counter-terrorism strategy. Um, Countering violent extremism is the hardest part of the whole strategy and the prevent part of that strategy is needs to be reviewed. Um, the attacks that we had in 2017, I think, were a portent of what's going to happen in the future. We're back in the uh, in the crosshairs of uh, IS terrorism and Al-Qaeda terrorism, and so that too, I think, will be a big security issue for the year. Those are the two big domestic issues. And how would any further cuts to defence affect our armed forces' capability to defend against any growing threats? I think if the National Capability Review ends up cutting the Ministry of Defence and our armed forces any further, then we really will see some capability gaps. You can only go so far with cuts and efficiencies, and we all know that when the MOD talks about efficiencies, they're really talking about cuts now. Um, And we've already lost some areas of capability, and if we lose, for instance, amphibious capability and a cut to the Royal Marines, then it hobbles what the Navy can do and also what our ground forces can do. And that's the problem, that this National Capabilities Review was meant to be cost-neutral. It was just a rearrangement of the, of the pieces. But actually, the trade-offs are turning out to be so severe that if there are any cuts, then I think we will lose whole areas of capability. The more likely outcome, which is not particularly satisfactory, is that there will be more smoke and mirrors that the, the programmes will be stretched, there'll be more ambiguity about how many uh, F-35s we're going to buy, what the numbers of the army might be. And in fact, the, in effect, the government will put off 
the difficult decisions until after Brexit. And that, I think, would be uh, pretty bad news because it means that the defence policy that we signed up to in 2010 and 2015 will be drifting further um, off course. Realistically, how concerned about that are you? In reality, I'm very concerned about defence policy at the moment. The government may decide to spend a little bit more on defence, and it should do, because if it wants to deliver its 2015 policy, it has to spend more. More likely, it will try to make cuts, which I think would be potentially very damaging, and the middle course will be to do neither of those things and stretch it, more smoke and mirrors, so that defence policy looks the same, but actually has more ambiguity put into it. That's politically always the most likely, likely outcome, but it's not good for defence. The fact is, we've reached a point when trying to maintain full capability forces, full combat spectrum forces at very low numbers is no longer sustainable. And our armed forces lack the sustainability and the reputation for being able to stick at something. We all know that the personal qualities of our people are very, very good. The training is good, the equipment is good. But eventually, if the numbers become so low, you simply cannot be strategically significant in the world. And I think we've reached that point where the world wonders, particularly in the light of Brexit, whether we can be strategically significant in a military sense. I think we're right on the edge of that particular slippery slope. Professor Michael Clark talking to our reporter, Hannah King. Professor Paul Rogers, capability gaps, smoke and mirrors, low troop numbers. He's very concerned. Are you? I am concerned, but I think in a slightly different way, I'd agree very much with virtually all that Mike says. I think the significant thing is we're not looking to the nature of the future threats and how Britain has to adjust to those. If you take one example, which he actually mentioned, and that's the Navy's amphibious capability. If we lose that, if we lose the two Albion-class ships, in a sense that's a marker for a decline in one key area. I personally think that's probably one of the most important areas for the Navy, not just in terms of putting troops ashore, but to have really versatile ships which can respond to a very wide range of emergencies. And we don't have that. The one Navy that's actually looking at that quite extraordinary is actually the Italian Navy with what it's doing. But that, in a sense, is a reflection of a wider problem. We're not really looking to the future of the kinds of problems that are being faced. And as far as the Navy is concerned, we're moving fairly rapidly, crudely, into a two-ship Navy. One SSBN and one aircraft carrier able to be fully resourced and that is not the way to have a navy for the kind of world we're moving into. Christopher Lee, how concerned are you? Um, I'm concerned in quite a different way. Uh, I mean, for example, the Royal Marines and this and their uh, amphibious capability, why should the Royal Marines now have a capability like that in modern thinking the way that over in the cabinet office if you talk to them they're thinking in a different way entirely it's not that you know the Royal Marines are special forces uh, we've moved on to some extent we don't use special forces in beach uh, opposed landings any, any any longer so get them as special forces rather like ranger forces get them to where you want them to be in, a, in, in another form that's one part of it uh, Mike talks about um, Mike uh, talks about the full spectrum and that the people around the world looking and saying that the Britain isn't the power that once it was. No, it isn't. It's as simple as that. So what do you do? Do you say we want people to think that way and then you look at the big issues and the big uh, issues that we have, say in the Middle East, where Britain's contribution has been you know, perfectly adequate, it has been perfectly in line with Britain's uh, strate strategic, strategic values. And then there's another side of it when people say, well, we're, you know, we're pretty reduced, think of it this way. We have a four-boat uh, 
Intercontinental Ballistic Missile Submarine System. Uh, tell me who else has got that, apart from the Americans and the Russians. We have two uh, carriers, admittedly not all can be at sea at the same time. Who else has got that? We ought to be thinking in one something else for this new review, and it is quite different from what Mike Clark thinks. I know that because I've talked to him about it. And that's this. Um, we could reduce to a one-carrier ship. You've got some money from it uh, for selling one of them. You restructure your defence capability as a European strategic force, that is, one that can look after the interests of, of Europe, which are quite often our own, but also be used to bounce off just as the Germans can go to Afghanistan or anything like that. And then the Prime Minister can go in March 2019 and saying, this is the defence review, this is the view, this is the sort of forces that we will now have, and Europe, these forces are geared towards Europe. That's where their home base is. That, I suspect, would satisfy the political side of it, and that will knock or shut up the whole of Europe who says we want to be a European defence force because the British have sort of skimmed off in another direction. Paul Rogers, what do you think is meant by being strategically significant in a military way? And do you think it matters if, or what do you think the consequences would be if Britain weren't? I think it is very important indeed, but it is significant in what respect? If you think, as I would argue very strongly, that the really major problems facing us over the next 30 years will be worldwide economic marginalisation and more and more revolts from the margins, as we're seeing now, and the effects of potentially catastrophic climate change, you need to approach security in a very different way and have a very different military posture. We're simply not doing that yet. What should that be? Well, essentially, you, I mean, for example, we had, what was it, three category five hurricanes hitting the Caribbean in the space of three weeks. Mm. Why did we not have the capability, the proper capability, to actually aid that? We're going to get this kind of phenomenon virtually every we year We had RFA Mounts Bay out there, didn't we? Yes, but I mean, you know, suppose you had a properly constituted, well-trained ship, a larger one, like Bulwark or Albion, refitted appropriately. You could have done far more, and you have one of that sort of ship with that sort of training and equipment on guard duty for every hurricane season. You'd suddenly find that Britain would play playing a role that no other country was prepared to play, the kind of role we're going to have to play in the future. Mm. Uh, Christopher Lee, we're hearing reports today that the National Capability Review is being delayed. Perhaps even one person is saying to next year. You'd argue there is no delay as such. What do you think is going on at the moment? OK, you've got three, basically you've got three departments in the whole of Whitehall. You've got the Department of Defence, the Cabinet Office and also the Foreign Office. They're all looking at different ways about the security of the United Kingdom. Let's say on the other side of Whitehall, where you've got the Cabinet Office and, 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 and to some extent, and the Foreign Office, they're producing what has been produced some, from, from some time now, since the days of a, a rather great permanent undersecretary of the Defence Ministry, Mike Quinlan, sort of thought of the idea that we should have a, a strategic review. The idea of a strategic review is, is strategic, i.e. what is our strategic uh, uh, studies uh, telling us what are we actually thinking that's where we want to be that's where we want our influences to and be. is that what's going on at the moment the thinking what, on where we want to be but also uh, on the other side 
is saying, look, the, the, the defence ministry is demanding more money or the defence ministry wants to run certain things the way we're, uh, we should be run. How come we've got these aircraft carriers, for example, which was, which was, if you talk to people in the foreign office, they think it's the most absurd decision yeah. ever taken to have those aircraft carriers. And not only the aircraft carriers, the, the, the frigates and the subsurface vessels that are needed to maintain them or maintain their own security, plus a load of aeroplanes, which you're buying from the Americans, which you could have got cheaper anyway. But you're doing that. You're, you're, and therefore, once you've got that force, you don't have it in Portsmouth Harbour. What you do, it is that, that you start thinking about force projection. In other words, we can go anywhere so, in the world. And therefore, you start to change the emphasis okay, of your so, strategic thinking. So we're not going to delay. We've got some very hard thinking going on, which is going to get the right answers. Um, we have some hard thinking, which will only get the right answers um, if two things happen. One is that the strategic view has a value. You see, um, when Paul's talking about, for example, uh, the idea of climate change, think also climate change, think of also uh, 60 billion people displaced at the moment in the world. Think of great masses of people mm. on the move. Yeah. Think of things that happen, let's say, in the Middle East. You've got to be able to do the things that you could do on a grand scale, like going to the Caribbean, but at the same time, you've got to have one single value, which is why... I, I think, for example, the idea of getting one of those carriers, mm. getting rid of both of them, really. And, and, That's and, the second and time you said that today. That <laughs> Anyone all? would think you're campaigning, Christopher Lee. Uh, now I certainly have never done that. Here's a question. Uh, is the British Army top-heavy? One of our regular contributors, Elizabeth Braw, thinks there are too many high-ranking officers over the com uh, and over the Christmas break. She wrote a column for The Times about it. This caused a bit of a stir, and the CGS wrote to the paper the next day to say that the Army was addressing the problem. Well, Elizabeth joins us now. Hello, Elizabeth. Have you have you heard from the CGS personally? I haven't, but I've read his letter to the editor. Mm. Uh, for those who haven't read it, what did you say in his piece that actually got this response from him? Uh, so in my piece, I essentially pointed out that uh, Britain has very good uh, soldiers and uh, junior officers and that we just need to put... Uh, well, give them more attention and, and resources. And I also pointed out that there has been uh, so-called star creep, so uh, an increase in the number of generals over the past couple of decades. And uh, I think that's what got yes, most that, that, attention. That, that's what's got his attention. Certainly, General Sir Nick Carter said in his letter, the total number of starred officers, i.e. brigadiers and generals, working under my command has been reduced by nearly 40% from 141 to 85 during the past five years or, or so. Um, what did you make of that response? Well, he's clearly um, addressing the problem. Uh, what I would like to know from, from him and others is what they are doing about joint appointments, which I believe is where the most, most of the inflation has been. And um, uh, we'll also see uh, what, what uh, is happening in, in the other services. But uh, I'm glad to have stirred up a bit of a debate with this because it is a concern to to soldiers and, and uh, junior officers out there and there are uh, quite a few of them serving overseas as we speak I tell you, as, you, this, as you well know <laughs> this was one side of this um, and in, in, in a more up-to-date side of it and that is the way that I think the general the CGS has reorganized the British Army not the other two services the army and therefore is moving quite ruthlessly I think to top-down uh, uh, stru structure changes so that you do have a small number of people. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry you didn't mention the Navy. 
Now, as it happens, I think the Navy has got more one- and two-star admirals hanging around than it has got uh, uh, in-surface ships. Will that be the subject of your next article, Elizabeth? That's right. I'll take them to task one by one. <laughs> but, uh, I that will only take you about three minutes. Uh, it's not just the UK. I should mention this is this is a, a, a trend has been a trend over the, the past couple of decades or so in in essentially most Western countries. And uh, I mentioned in the piece. Uh, I'll just give you the figures quickly. Uh, the the number of uh, generals and admirals in the U.S. armed forces, which has increased. Um, to a ratio of one general per 1,400 troops today compared to 6,000 troops uh, during World War II. So uh, it is a quite significant increase. You also cite in your article um, a certain General Vincenzo Camporini, an Italian Italian former chief of defence, who has a bit of a formula about the right kind of investing in the armed forces in terms of uh, the defence budget on procurement, modernisation, personnel. What is that exactly? Yes, so it's uh, it's uh, very easy to remember. Fifty percent um, personnel, twenty-five percent on procurement and modernization, and twenty-five percent on maintenance and training. Mm-hmm. And where he says we have gone wrong, we uh, Western countries, is that we have spent too much on salaries but uh, too little on maintenance and training. And I think that's where we are seeing the results. For example, in, in countries uh, like Germany, where there is just uh, the percent available uh, and and functioning is is, um, alarmingly low. All right, Elizabeth Braw, we'll leave it there for now. Thank you. Now, speaking of the CGS, General Sinek Carter, could he become the next chief of the defence staff? Well, Theresa May is expected to choose a new CDS to replace Air Chief Marshal Sir Stuart Peach, who will step down in the spring. The other name in the frame is General Sir Gordon Messenger, who's currently vice chief of the defence staff. Uh, Christopher Lee, General Messenger, a Royal Marine. We never heard of a Marine as CDS, have we? Um, what's going for him? Well, I mean, you have you have the uh, Chief of the Air Staff, CAS, Chief of the General Staff, and First Sea Lord, Chief of the Naval Staff. And then you've got this equivalent officer who runs the Royal Marines, but there is no slot for him unless you put him in to, uh, to be Chief of the Naval Staff, because he is he's a sailor. Uh, well, he's not. He's a soldier in the sailor's service, right? And of course, nobody ever gets into that slot, so he never comes up to the to the main slot. But Gordon Messenger, who is uh, very much for uh, forty commando, who as a colonel uh, led some quite fearsome advances in the two thousand three Iraq War, commanded in Afghanistan, and is a thinker. Now, here's my thought: uh, he is at the moment the deputy chief of the defence staff, right? The present chief of the defence staff is going off to become chairman of the military committee in NATO. Wouldn't it be a very good idea, again think this idea of thinking ahead into Europe, wouldn't it be a very good idea that you have Gordon Messenger, General Messenger, Royal Marine, and Royal Marines are good because they think this way, they think uh, how do I stop a war and if it doesn't stop how do I fight it? And that's the sort of thinking you want back home in London. But wouldn't it be very good if you have his former boss and him in the two top jobs, mm. able to talk to each other at a time when Britain has got to rapidly and radically 
re, uh, reform their armed forces. Could be, an interesting, spot. could be an interesting combination. Professor Paul Rogers from the University of Bradford is still with us. Um, Paul, um, your your money's on General Carter, isn't it? Why? My, my money's on Carter because of uh, uh, his performance in his current role. Personally, I think Messenger would be preferable. I would agree with Chris. Uh, because I think this is a time when we need some really very different thinking. A messenger sounds, just from his background, like the kind of person who may be more able to do it and really sort of think beyond the current dynamics. Uh, yes, I also like the idea in relation to Europe because who knows where we're going to be with the impact of Brexit. And I think uh, if he was actually CDS, I think, uh, well, certainly it would be, I think Carter will get it up, but I think that Messenger would be better. And Christopher, how much of a say do you think the Defence Secretary will have about the appointment? Well, it's, the actual, it's, it's, quite, it's, it's quite like appointing a bishop as mm. far as I can work out. You get the senior guys, so you get the, uh, the Defence Secretary, the new Defence Secretary, uh, you get the, the permanent undersecretary, who's the civilian head, uh, and then they take soundings, mm -hmm. and they know who they think. They've seen, they've worked with them. You know, if, you, if you're in the, uh, the defence ministry, you're working almost every day with CGS and with, with the CDS. Yes. Interesting that no RAF nor a naval officer's name has come up for the frame of this. I, gu I guess uh, we don't know when the decision is going to be announced, do we? And I hope it's not going to be delayed after Brexit because we definitely after will Brexit, have a capability. We, we definitely have a capability cap in that case. Well, won't that's we? right. <laughs> but you know, this goes over to the uh, prime minister and the two names. At the moment, it is Carter, uh, a messenger, and uh, she's got to sort of pick her out of the hat. But she'll know who the defence minister prefers. Well, that's all we have time for this week. Join the conversation. Christopher and I are live on the Forces News Facebook page on Thursdays from about 3.15 UK time. Thanks to all our guests today, to Professor Paul Rogers from the University of Bradford. Join us again same time next week, or you can tweet us at BFBS SITREP and subscribe to the podcast. From me, Kate Chabot, thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.